you know, the idea of what Tesla is doing and that's making the world a better place and all this stuff. But like they refuse to hold Tesla accountable themselves. I, I mean, I started the Tesla Q podcast and I love the idea of, of Tesla. Yeah. Zero emission transportation is a fantastic idea. Yeah. I love that idea. The Tesla Q podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended for and should not be used as financial, investment, or trading advice. Research associated with fiscal decisions should be conducted elsewhere. The host of the show possesses no license or credentials to warrant accepting advice based on what is heard on the Tesla Q podcast. Additionally, even though the host and guests may hold positions in companies discussed on the show, they don't have insights into the next time step of the simulation. Therefore, do not make any financial decisions based on the contents of this podcast hello and welcome to episode number 48 of the tesla q podcast this episode is going to be an interview with ed niedermeyer the author of the recently released book ludicrous and i think it's going to be a very good episode as always if you want to subscribe to the the podcast you can go to patreon.com slash tesla q podcast and become a patron and help support the podcast there will be a bonus segment at the end we're going to record it at the end of this interview and that will only be available to patrons i'll try to get most of the meat in the free version but we'll we'll try to have a little bit more fun probably in the the bonus episode so join join up on patreon if you're interested in that and as always if you want some shorty merchandise you can go to evacuationboy.com and check out what evacuation boy has there so without further ado welcome ed hi thanks for uh thanks for having me uh and do you prefer ed or edward Ed's great. Ed's great. All right. Yeah. Nice, easy two-letter name. Yeah, so, like to keep it simple. So uh, you named your book Ludicrous, and it, it's only been out for about a month or so. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it came out August 20th. So yeah, a little, little over. And what was the the cutoff date for when you had to have it like finalized and, and sent to the publisher? Uh, I think like, was it like three months before or something like that? Um. Cause yeah, it's, it's between the, um, like typesetting and printing and distribution and whatever. Yeah. I think it's like two or three months. And I, I should, I should have known that since I just finished listening to it earlier today. Uh, I should have known which, which was the last or most recent thing that you actually mentioned in, in the book, but. Well, it's funny. I, I honestly don't know if I could, I could tell you right now the the, because it was so hard to just sort of cut off and end it because it's just everything is ongoing like the last the last couple of months also just you know running up on deadlines like it's honestly it was a complete blur I, I really don't remember any of that like the whole first half of this year is just kind of <laughs> gone yeah I mean I started a podcast at the beginning of this year and it, it was just crazy I did a four-part March Madness series it, it's it's just been completely insane and ludicrous yeah. of course <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, when you pay enough attention to Tesla, like the, the insanity kind of ends up taking over your life a little bit. So. Yeah. I, that might actually be the, the thing that I most look forward to about the story. Some, some, at some point coming to a conclusion, I actually didn't expect that the podcast would be going on this long, but I, I didn't think that Tesla was going to survive quite this long, but. Yeah, well, you're talking to someone who's been, you know, pretty focused on Tesla since, you know, late 2014, early 2015. So, uh, yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you did not originate the Tesla death, death watch, right? Could, yeah. You want to you yeah. just, just describe that really quick? I trying yeah, to remember, I, I just listened to the book last week and this week. So 
I, I'm thinking that's where I heard that whole description, but you can give the condensed version here for the, the listeners. Yeah, no, th- thank you for the opportunity because like that just gets brought up so often and, and it's frustrating because it is brought up like as a way to not deal with the substance of, of what I'm saying. It's a way to get people to not listen to me. Um, but it's also factually inaccurate, like the, the way it's presented. So um, the Tesla death watch was a thing. Um, it, it's, it would basically ran from early 2008 uh, right after I started freelancing straight out of school at the truth about cars um, until I think very early 2009, uh, maybe, maybe even it was, it might've just been 2008. Um, and basically uh, the truth about cars where I started, like the main project there was documenting the decline and fall of uh, the Detroit automakers. And so the biggest project there was the GM death watch. Um, but there was also a, a Ford death watch and like a Chrysler, I think it was a Chrysler suicide watch. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so like, you know, basically it was just, um, and, and so on the Tesla stuff specifically, like it was, it was much smaller than those other ones. It was barely even an afterthought. Um, all of my contributions to that were before I became an editor. It was all just freelance stuff that was um, basically assigned to me and that was pretty heavily edited and rewritten because um, I was just getting started and and the website had a very distinct kind of voice at that time. And uh, so it's amazing that it's become this huge thing because at the time it was like we didn't think anybody would ever – remember it or think twice about it. Um, and also the other thing is it was all just reblogging other people's reporting. So like Owen Thomas at um, Ballybag was doing some really good reporting on Tesla's very, by the way, very real problems at the time. Um, of course, Elon Musk now is like, you know, we almost went bankrupt in 2008. So uh, like doing a death watch was not that unreasonable, I think. Um, but also it was not like we were you know, obsessing about them. It was, it was just another series. Um, and then, and then of course, Tesla's argument is that, right. That ever since 2008, when I did contribute to the death watch, um, that I've been writing critically about Tesla ever since. Um, that's really not true at all. Um, I don't think I really wrote about them at all, hardly between 2010 and about 2014. And in 2014, I wrote, I think three pieces about them for, for Bloomberg view, um, I would categorize two of them as being more positive than negative, And one of them was a little more critical. Um, and it wasn't until 2015 when I stumbled into the battery swap thing uh, that I really sort of realized like, wait a second, this is not just another company. They're, uh, they're kind of willing to do and say anything, uh, which if you're an investigative minded person, um, that's sort of your signal to start digging, which is what I did. And here we are. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that they had a lot of issues back in 2008. Uh, a little random thing about me, I actually took a, a class in the, I think it was the spring of 2007, or it might have been 2008, actually. And I actually did a presentation that included a blurb about Tesla and the white star at the time, yep. b- before it was officially the Model S. And one of the things, and I, I dug this up just a couple months ago, and one of the things that struck me was that the Roadster apparently had some major like crash testing safety issues back then. And seeing that in 2019, that struck me as, oh, well, maybe this is why Elon Musk is so keen about the NHTSA five-star crash ratings today. Mm-hmm. So that that was just something that, that struck me. Yeah. 
No, um, and and what, what's what always strikes me looking back at those at those times is is how much we didn't know back then. Like we've learned so much since then about what was really going on, um, and we had no clue. Like, again, like I was contributing to this Tesla death Tesla death watch. I mean, if we knew half the stuff that we know today, uh, I probably would have paid a lot more attention and and written about it a lot more. Uh, but we just didn't have a clue, and and that's been true throughout the history of this company where. There's crazy stuff happening all the time. We don't find out about it until years later. Mm-hmm. And before we go any further, do you want to just disclose your your Tesla holdings, which I assume <laughs> are nothing, or and and maybe your overall investment holdings? Yeah, yeah. So um, that that's also been the very funny thing is is you know the the outright accusation or implication that I I play you know that I that I bet on Tesla or or play the market at all. Um, I'm actually very very bad with money. Uh, I work in a business that doesn't earn a lot of money. Um, so I don't have any exposure to the stock market. Uh, I've never had any exposure of any kind, long, short, puts, call, whatever, like not no even, exposure to Tesla, not even a 401k. No, no, no index funds or anything? Nope, not even index funds. I have a 15-year mortgage that I'm trying to pay off. Uh, the real estate market in Portland has been strong. and um, Building I, some equity there. Yeah, just trying to trying to build up that equity, and uh, hopefully, when that's all paid off, I'll be in a position to think a little more seriously. But at least, you know, as a writer, you know, I, I figure worst case, I'll, I'll keep writing until I, I die at my computer. And as long as, I, <laughs> as long as I own my house, you know, and I have a computer, like I can keep doing what I'm doing, and I enjoy what I'm doing. So uh, it's not the worst retirement plan. What what about watches? Do you own any watches? You know what? I don't own watches. <laughs> I I almost got into watches at one point and um and then didn't and I'm really glad because I just don't have the money for that. <laughs> it's not a cheap cheap thing to to go after. No. Um so journalistically you would consider yourself to be sufficiently independent to to report on Tesla. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, well, n- yes and no. I mean, like, I first of all, I've never really self-applied the term journalist. Um, mostly because not because I don't think I'm I'm, you know, fair. Uh, but I just I I've never really like bought into a lot of like the construct that is journalism. Um, people build it up to be this huge thing, and really, you know, journalism is what you do. I don't really see it as an identity. Like, if you do good work that's fair and and ethical and even-handed then that work is journalism it doesn't make you a journalist though i think i think identifying yourself as a journalist is like it's a slippery slope to like because it's like if you're thinking of yourself that way then you're not thinking about like is the work journalism and that's the important part to me um i will say just on the issue of fairness um you know it's very hard to be fair about a company that has attacked you yeah. You know, that has uh, said that you make stuff up. That's uh, that, that still, said that, yeah. st- still has a blog post out there about you on their yeah. website. Yeah. And so, like, I'm happy to admit that I'm not unbiased. I mean, I don't think anybody is unbiased, like, fully unbiased about anything, really. But, like, on this issue particularly, yes. Like, I have there, I have a history with this company that makes it hard to be objective. And I'm, I'm fine disclosing that. Like, it's not a problem for me. Um, what, uh, what are some of your favorite parts of the, the book that you wrote? <laughs> do, do you have a favorite part or, or anything? Um, I really enjoyed being done with the book. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, I think, I think the, the, the book was really, it was really hard to know what to do and what not to do because I really wanted it to be 
Um, like, like I, I didn't write the book for people, um, probably for the people who are listening to this podcast, frankly, even though I'm sure quite a few of them bought it. Um, I really, I wanted it to be something that, um, that, that people who have not followed the story closely could pick up and kind of understand what's going on and sort of get this other perspective on Tesla that um, certainly before, you know, 2017, let's say, just was not out there in the media at all. Um, it was all just the, the classic sort of Tesla, Elon Musk sort of mythology. Um, and so I wanted to show sort of the, the, the history of the company at a very high level um, in a way that someone who's not an expert in the auto industry, who hasn't been following the story really closely, can understand. That having been said, um, I mean, I think one of the things that uh, that was really hard about this was finishing it. Um, like the last chapter in particular, like how to how to end it was really hard because it was ongoing. And um, I ended up making the last chapter about um, Tesla's screens, its use of these big screens and sort of how they reflect the two different perspectives that have sort of emerged about Tesla. Um, it was really hard to explain to people uh, beyond just telling the story, like, why is it that like people, and, and really it's a lot of what I was trying to explain with the book is like, why is it that people um, either love either or people, hate? Yeah. They either fully believe in it or they just, they just can't stand it. And, and, and they think it's, you know, fraudulent or whatever. Um, and I think the screens are an interesting way to think about that because it shows um what I think is a real pattern with Tesla, which is that they're constantly optimizing for the short-term perception. Um, and that creates, I and mean, this is only one part of it. There's a lot more to why people love them so much. Um, but like a lot of it is that they really optimize for short-term perception. They do it in a way that really taps into um, sort of the technological moment that we live in. Um, and that the flip side of this is that, you know, every, everything is a trade-off. And if you, if you optimize for short-term perception, uh, you have to give something up. And almost always in Tesla's case, um, that creates uh, a, a sort of long tail uh, uh, risk of some kind. And, and a lot of times that's like durability and reliability and things like that. And, and definitely with the screen, that's, that, you know, that's the case. But I think also the, the screen also, um, you know, really looks like a smartphone in a way that I compare to uh, tail fins on cars in the 50s. Uh, where, you know, the hot technology then was rockets and, and jets. Um, and, you know, but like what sold well was not putting jets in cars. Companies did try and put jets in cars. But what sold well were making cars look kind of like jets. Uh, and people just wanted the aesthetics of the technology that was hot right then. Mm -hmm. And so I think screens like really are able to, Tesla's use of screens are, are really able to um, say a lot about the company. And so I was pretty happy ultimately with, with, you know, sort of having that be where things sort of ended up. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the long-term implications of, of that optimizing for the short term is that Tesla's had to go back to the capital markets time and time again. Yeah. And that's, that's something that, that, that's, that's one of the, one of the probably four to five things that from my perspective, just continually baffle me that Tesla fans just overlook this and like like just yesterday of course they delivered or they announced that they delivered 97,000 cars in quarter 3 and all these tesla fans are like why why did the share price go down they set an all-time delivery record and they 
almost universally seem to ignore the fact that sale prices have been going down. Like yeah. the average sales price is declining. So right, which and, is what you see with every car, right? Every car comes out, they sell a lot of the high sort of margin versions of them, and then over time, right, like sales plateau, and then they start to fall off, and then you have to bring down the price in order to keep your volume up and like that's the fundamental that's what happens with every car in the car business and it's happening to tesla like mm-hmm. shocking yeah um one of the things that i that just really really stood out reading the book because i i didn't dive deeply into the the whole tesla saga until sometime in 2018 probably late late spring early summer of 2018 but the the march 20 march of 2013 was just insane like apparently in january and february of that year they didn't sell that many cars but then in march somehow they had this crazy month of sales which helped that i i don't remember if if that sales figure helped them get the loan but they they were able to get some additional loan which helped them pay off their doe loan which caused and and then they also reported a profit at, for that quarter and all those things combined just caused an insane short squeeze, which frankly is a huge part still today of why Tesla's shares are overvalued from, from my perspective. Sure. Do you, do you yeah. want to just briefly talk about that, that yeah. part of the story? Yeah. So it's a really, really important part of the story. And, um, you know, I was able to get some more insight into it than was out there previously um, by FOIA requesting um, these monthly reports that Tesla had to file with the DOE, uh, Department of Energy, as a condition of their loan. Um, And that was really interesting because, so I was already fascinated by this, this, it was really just one quarter, two quarters basically, like the first half of 2013, but but really that, that first quarter um, as you say, their, their sales were just not doing so well. And then, um, they, you know, they had all these orders or, or sorry, reservations for Model S, which had been out since the summer before, but those weren't converting into, into actual orders. Um, and, you know, in, in the car business, you know, and, and obviously Tesla's a little different because it's, a, it's, an, it's not as a mature of a company and operating as a mature of a market. Um, so there's some more, you know, unpredictability with them um, than with others. But, but one of the things you learn when you cover the, the auto industry is that like, there are no miracles. Like if, if something has been selling at a certain rate uh, and then all of a sudden it just fundamentally changes in one quarter, like that's, there was iffy. That's some, something, something caused on. that something is going on there. And what I learned and what, so what I learned was that, was that it wasn't one quarter. It was literally one month. It was the last month. Of, of that first quarter of 2013 that they literally just flipped the switch on the sales. Um, and so like on the one hand, you know, my research was able to provide a little bit more insight into what was going on at that time. Um, but it's also very frustrating because there's clearly there was more happening there. And I, I don't have all, the, I still don't have all the answers about exactly what went down. Um, the official story um, from uh, Ashley Vance's book uh, is that you know they basically just got people from other parts of the company and put them on the phone and had them call up reservation holders and try and convert them into orders. What wasn't there something about red paint also? Yeah, so red paint also um, is something that I've been told um, 
helped and that there was definitely a push to get red paint available um, because people wanted it and people weren't going to, uh, there were a significant number of people who would not convert their reservations to orders until there was red paint. I still don't think those two factors. That doesn't seem really like it'd be expanded. enough. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe, I mean, the thing, the problem with Tesla too, is that, is that you can never right? normally when you, when you do investigative work, um, a lot of, a lot of, you know, the, the, the legwork for that involves essentially eliminating the most unlikely scenarios. So you can sort of drill down into what actually happened. Um, and the problem with Tesla again and again, not just in this situation, like, you know, when looking at this particular circumstances, but, but again and again, throughout the history of the company, like so much just crazy stuff happens. Um, and they do so many things in ways that not only no automaker would do, but like no normal company would do that. It, it becomes very, very difficult to completely eliminate an unlikely possibility. And that makes investigating them incredibly hard. It's actually a brilliant strategy. I don't know if it's intentional, but <laughs> it's it's brilliant on their part because you know, if you're unpredictable and enough crazy stuff happens, like people who are investigating you aren't able to do that process of eliminating unlikely scenarios, or at least it's much harder to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm personally frustrated that like, I still don't 100% know, and I had to write this very carefully, obviously, and I went through legal review and all this other stuff to make sure that I'm, you know, uh, and I think people who read the, who, who are really familiar with the auto industry, they'll look at that and they'll say, okay, they turn around their sales in one month. Like, you know, that, that alone, I, it, you don't need a, a smoking gun. Like that is, by auto industry standards, a smoking gun that something, something yes. happened. Definitely something changed. Yeah. So, but, um, but, you know, in, in part also, um, I think, you know, one of, because I realized early on, not early on, but, but during the process of writing this book, um, that I wasn't going to have all of the insider sources that I wanted. I mean, I have quite a few, but like, especially at the very high levels and, um, there were just, I, you know, there was going to be stuff that I wasn't going to get, um, be able to get, uh, so to some extent, um, the book, you know, part of the book was to point of the book was to sort of not just present this other side of Tesla that wasn't really um, being shown in the media so much, uh, but also show it in a way that um, people who worked in the company uh, could look at it and say, yeah, like that, that's fair, right? Like that reflects mm-hmm. both what I loved about the company but also what I hated about the company, because I also learned as I talked to more and more people that like, that's the deal with people who are at Tesla, right? Like, like, yes, they get treated terribly and they all burn out and, and (laughs) they all end up having, you know, traumatic experiences, frankly. Um, But they also all got into it because they believed in the mission. And so they have these really complex emotions about it. And that's why I, I really, in a lot of ways went out of my way to, dial back some of my critiques and, and really try and make this fair so that people, so that I can learn more so that people can read it and be like, you know what? Like, yeah, like this is, this, this shows the good and the bad. Um, and this person is someone that um, I can talk to without worrying that, you know, everything that Tesla communications says about me, you know, uh, mm-hmm. is not true. So, yeah. Uh, and this is not Ed talking. This is TQ talking, but, one thing that, that I might throw out there as a 
a, a theory or hypothesis with that March 2013 quarter is maybe a related party transaction. I don't know. Uh, I think yeah. SpaceX was our, they had already reached orbit by that time. So yeah, maybe they yeah. had some cash. I, I don't know. That's just me being baggy, I guess, and throwing a theory <laughs> out there. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, I'm, I was also very careful to not publish anything that I couldn't really confirm with multiple sources, which is also mm-hmm. very hard because Tesla does a, a very good job of uh, compartmentalizing and sort of siloing stuff mm-hmm. so that not very many people know what's going on in different parts of the company. Um, and so I've definitely heard stories uh, that I was not able to confirm enough to put in the book mm-hmm. um, that there have been situations where uh, vehicles have been put into, for example, the engineering fleet. Uh, or the um, showroom, like test ride and and like loaner fleet, right? And that mm-hmm. that those eff- effectively served as a sales bank, um, so that they could you know sort of eventually be be sold on to an end consumer. But for some period of time, um, apparently the the sales may have been recorded as actual sales, even though they were sort of operating as a as a like I say a sales bank. Yeah, and with uh, with yesterday's announcement and the associated seven hundred million U.S. dollar five billion renminbi uh, line of credit that Tesla got with uh, some Chinese banks, yep. one one might wonder about that yet again. So, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, you can't again. You can't, you can't ever eliminate like almost any possibility with these guys. Like, yeah, I'd, I re- I. I tweeted yesterday that I really I will legitimately be disappointed if there is not an analyst on the call that asks if there were any fleet sales in quarter three, which I I thought there were fleet sales in quarter two, probably. And I still think there probably were in quarter three as well. So I guess we'll find out. Well, we probably won't find out for a while, but someday we'll probably find out. Yeah. Another another uh, another of the very interesting uh things that you covered in your book was the the bat the fact that tesla got some uh zev credits from demonstrating the battery swap even though the demonstration was was quite limited it they basically did the absolute minimum to get those credits without actually having people do battery swaps yep do you want to yeah. just, just go through that real quick yeah so i mean this is what what really pulled me in, right? This was my, uh, my moment, or I can't remember what Tesla charts calls it, but like, you know, the awakening or whatever. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, so I, I got, I, I had been interested in battery swap already because I'd covered a bit, um, and been very fascinated by this company called project better place, which is an Israeli company. Um, also went bankrupt, I think in, I can't remember 2013 ish, something like that. Um, but uh, so before Tesla started doing this, 2012 maybe, and um, I had been fascinated with them because I felt like um, they were bringing a really fresh approach to cars, um, and they were also trying to solve like solve the two biggest problems with electric cars, which are that um, they're too expensive and they take too long to charge. And they were doing that by selling you a car without a battery, uh, and then within Israel to start, and then I think they're doing Denmark, and they wanted to do Australia. Um, within these limited areas, they would have battery swap stations. So you would you would buy the car, but not own the battery. You would have like a mileage plan, um, and then when you need to refuel, you just instead of sitting there and charging for an hour, uh, you just drive in and, and swap the battery out. Um, I thought that was a really fascinating idea, and actually, 
you know, there's a really important lesson from that company, which is that just because something sounds like a good idea <laughs> is no guarantee that the company is going to make it. Um, and that was a, a really important lesson for me to learn. But, um, you know, in 2014, Tesla started talking about battery swap and I was like, uh, you know, like this, I, I didn't expect to, I didn't expect to hear about battery swap again. I thought it would, it would die with, with better place and never come back. Um, and it, you know, and, and so basically they did, they did the demonstration. They said it was all automated, but it took place behind a curtain. That was the other time I was like, Oh, that's, that's weird. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, and then they said in December of 2014, okay, it's, it's open. We have the station. We're contacting people, people who make this drive regularly. Uh, can uh, can use the station. They're getting invites, whatever. Uh, by May of the following year, like five months later, like I had in fact, I found one report of one guy who'd used it, uh, and he seemed to be affiliated with Tesla. And um, I was very suspicious. Uh, and I was so so. I went down. I spent Memorial Day weekend. And in retrospect, I don't know really what I was thinking. I mean, I I I had this hunch, right? Like I I was suspicious. But like still spending four days of, of your holiday weekend down in a, a truck stop that smells like cow poop uh, <laughs> in the middle of the Central Valley, California, like I still, it's weird looking back at it. But like basically, yeah, they, they not only didn't use the swap station, but they also uh, brought in these extra superchargers because there were these long lines of the superchargers of people going between LA and San Francisco, uh, and they hooked them up to diesel generators. And like this was the, the the thing where I was like, whoa, like they're just willing to do anything. And then I dug into the carb rules, um, and I actually ended up talking to like uh, staffers at Carb, and they were telling the board members like, guys, you know, Tesla's taking advantage of us here. Like we we wrote this rule that allows you to demonstrate a swap um because we you know it was supposed to be the thin end of the wedge and these rules are supposed to the whole program is supposed to uh incentivize people to actually deploy technology so that people can really use it and the way we've written these rules this is them talking to their the board members you know their, their bosses basically like the way we've written this is just we're not actually doing what what we're trying to do here and the board members basically dismissed them. Um, not not like they didn't fire them, but they were like, you know, whatever, basically. Like, mm -hmm. we don't care. Like Tesla, and I think, you know, like with most subsidies, there's always a temptation to kind of put your finger on the scale and help out the local, you know, champion. And California had never had a, um, a uh, you know, an automaker before and, and clearly, and, and you know, it being Tesla and electric and all that stuff. It's understandable to some extent why California wanted to help this company, but the way it was happening was really um, not okay. And the the staff was, was saying that and it was being ignored. Um, so then I wrote a number of stories about it and uh, almost immediately Tesla said, uh, nobody wants this, nobody's using it. Uh, we tried, but it just didn't work and oh well. <laughs> uh, in reality, you know, I spoke to a number of people there, uh, uh, Tesla owners, who said they made the drive on a regular basis. They'd never been invited. Um, they had, you know, no idea how to, who to even, you know, who to contact about using it. They said they would absolutely would use it. I had people whose kids were crying in the back seat and they were staring down a, a like an hour wait just to get to the charger and then another hour to charge. Oh. Um, 
and and they were like you know they could be charging me anything right now. I would pay any price almost, you know, these were not poor people, right? Mm -hmm. The early Tesla adopter, I'd pay anything to just like get my kids home and just like end this nightmare, frankly. And, uh, and Tesla said nobody wanted it. So um, that was when I knew uh, that, you know, this was, this was a company, like I said, that would kind of do whatever it took um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, there's never just one cockroach. And so that's why I really, you know, decided, okay, like this is something that is worth the investment of time that it's going to take to, to really dig into what they're doing. Yeah. And I wonder if like, I, I would imagine their base battery pack design would require some modifications to be able to change the battery. And I would think that somebody like Rich, the Rich Rebuilds guy would have a pretty good idea of whether it's feasible to retrofit a like a base tesla battery pack to be able to swap it even so it, there's it just there's actually yeah there's actually a funny story about that and i actually never really wrote about it much um i, I or at all i don't think uh, i might have tweeted about it but i don't think i ever wrote a story about it um basically the deal was uh uh it was initially when when you got your car from the factory there was like adhesive um that was I can't, i'm trying to remember if it was like on the cover of the pack or something like that. And basically, so, so the way the rule was written was they had to demonstrate that it was capable of swapping the battery with, or basically, you know, refueling 80% within like under 10 minutes or something or under five minutes. And basically once the vehicle, once, once they'd swapped it once, they could do that. They could, they could meet that, you know, the, the rules for, for the, the extra credits, but the very first time you would bring it in, um, you know, fresh from the factory, they absolutely could not. It took them a half hour, I think, or something. I don't quote me on the number, but like it took them considerably longer um, than the the requirement to actually do that swap hmm. because they would have to like cut away this stuff. So again, it's typical Tesla where it's like, you know, yeah, okay, so technically that's you know it was possible to do within that time, but you know you had to do this work first. Well, does that really? count or not and like well, oh well, just give them the benefit of the doubt <laughs> yeah i'm actually surprised that that it would work after that first time i i would i would think that the battery was more secure in there than than that even but so i'm actually yeah, i'm um, actually surprised to hear that yeah i mean i you know again i don't i didn't do this myself but i i remember very clearly um reading about this and 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 yeah that that once once you did that initial sort of prep work that then you could actually swap it uh within the amount of time yeah well that makes it actually sound less egregious to me than it did before so tesla you're not that bad (laughs) (laughs) uh another another of the the stories that you had i think most of a chapter or maybe a full chapter on that that struck me considerably was the fact that at some point they promised that the the superchargers would be solar powered and that never happened. It still today has not happened. So yeah. you want to just give a summary of that chapter? And and of course, you don't. we don't want to give away the whole book here, but but just just some highlights. Yeah. So, I mean, the the supercharger thing is fascinating because, um, you know, people are constantly like, you know, oh, well, you know, Elon maybe doesn't deliver on time, but he always delivers. Well, with, with that one, I mean, just go look at the. Look at the, the the press release. Like the the press release when they announced the superchargers, it was like, and I'm I'm gonna paraphrase here. I don't have it in front of me, so I can't quote it. But it was like, 
drive at, as far as you want for free on the power of the sun. Like that was the tagline basically, again, paraphrase, but it was basically that. Um, and it, you know, okay. So they had, you know, Tesla's at that time when you'd buy it, you would get free supercharging. So it was free, but it wasn't on the power of the sun. And he would, again, you know, uh, later on, would talk about how, um, you know, they were zombie apocalypse proof. They were going to be all, you know, off the grid. Oh yeah. With the, those HEPA filters that are so awesome. Yeah. Well, no. So the, so that's the biohazard mode. No, the, what he meant by that was that the, the electrical grid could go down and superchargers will still work. Ah, yeah. That's definitely not happening right now. <laughs> no, it's, it's never happened. And, and even, I mean, I remember Fred Lambert wrote a story like, in 2017 or something like that where he like like again someone tweeted at musk about like the long it was because because this was basically the, and this is the fascinating thing with tesla is that there he he musk always anticipates the criticism he's consistently anticipated certain criticisms that people were going to make and then sort of put stuff out there to sort of mitigate that right and so battery swap was about mitigating the crit criticism that it takes too long to charge right well but you know nobody wanted to use it, so whatever. Um, but with with the the supercharger, it was it, he was trying to do two things. He was trying to a sort of you know put some infrastructure out there. And by the way, like I mean that turns out to have been a pretty smart move, at least for premium a premium EV having your own infrastructure mm -hmm. turned out to, to to make a lot of sense, right? So let's before they started selling the Model Three to all the little peons, which right yeah, that's another right yeah. Um, <laughs> But but the other thing he wanted to do was to, uh, you know, stave off this accusation that which really like not that many people were making back then. That's what's so weird. Like it's kind of self-inflicted because he was anticipating these criticisms, which like, yeah, some people have made. But like, I don't think it was ever as big a thing as he thought it would be. And so he said, you know, they're all going to be solar powered um, and that that way nobody can ever accuse us of having coal powered cars. Right. And um and so, like, the the problem is, it just it just never happened. And 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 so, yeah, in 2017, he he made it again because someone tweeted to him uh, a very cleverly done picture um, of a supercharger with a coal plant in the background, <laughs> um, and was like, you know, so someone basically was sort of trolling him on Twitter, and he was like, no, we're definitely like they're all going to be solar, like it's definitely going to happen. And like, I don't know of a single a single one that is actually 100% solar. And actually when I did the battery swap story, I asked them, I was like, oh, so you guys have diesel generators, huh? Like I, I thought that this, these were all supposed to be solar powered. Like, are you not even buying uh, uh, renewable energy from your local you know, grid partners or whatever? And they were like, well, in Europe, you know, we only buy zero emission energy, um, but, and elsewhere we like try to but like they can't even guarantee that that their own right forget forget putting their own mm -hmm. solar panels yeah. on there and making them off grid they can't even guarantee that they're buying renewable energy which by the way like i do at home like and of course i live next to a big dam so like that that helps but like it's not that hard to make sure you know to, to pay a little extra to mm -hmm. the, the utility and um and they don't even do that what's really galling about that is that simultaneously on their website they have this carbon counter that that <laughs> ticks off all of the carbon that their their cars are displacing and they're and I asked them are, yeah. are they assuming that their cars are directly replacing coal with zero emission electricity no so they're so are I, they I doing a 
Yeah, I don't know what I think they're they're taking like the average fuel economy of a car and then doing the carbon calculation on that, which, you know, um, averages, whatever. Let's let's say that's that's fine. Like, let's not nitpick that. Yeah, that part. Uh, whatever. Yeah. But they're to, to come up with the number that they're, you know, that they're actually displacing. They do that based on the assumption that their cars are all using zero uh, carbon energy which they don't, again, they don't even guarantee that's the case with their own superchargers, let alone with however people are charging at home. So like that carbon number is basically, I mean, again, like who knows what the, what the real number is? Like, I, I mean, you could assume the average U.S. grid or whatever municipality grid. You could do, you, you, could, you could do, could some do that way and, and I yep. would be fine with that. But, you know. but, the, but the point is they don't even make that effort. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they they would just as soon just put it out there like our cars are zero emission. And, and like people like, again, this is part of, you know, a lot of Tesla's brilliance has been in communication. And, you know, this thing of like, you know, just saying often enough that our cars are zero emission, saying that all superchargers are solar, even though they never delivered on it. It's like people pick up that stuff mm-hmm. and they start repeating it and it like becomes true to them. Mm hmm. And uh, Tesla has tapped into that very, very well. Repeating a lie often enough, people yep. think that it's true. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I haven't actually dug into this part, but so they, they don't even buy like zero emission electricity for their superchargers. That, so again, that seems like I, something that somebody should uh, investigate. If there's anybody that listens to this podcast and uh, writes articles for any major publications, maybe in... Uh, anywhere in the U.S. or anywhere else, you know. Yeah, dig into um, that. Yeah, so, so my my information from that or on that dates back to 2015, which is when I did the the battery swap stories. Um, I don't know if it's still current. Um, I know one reporter has asked about it, uh, and the response was not clear um an unclear response no yeah right and and just to be super clear i mean i would love to ask them myself but uh they won't answer my phone calls won't won't answer my emails i mean they basically i'm i don't exist to them so like anything that requires a response (laughs) from Tesla, i mean and i do like a lot of times i'll write stories and and i will email them for for comment and like don't even get a no uh, comment not even a no comment. Yeah. So um, that's that's also very very challenging, actually, as a journalist. Um, so. so similarly to what I said earlier, that I'll be disappointed if nobody asks about fleet sales. I will similarly be disappointed if nobody asks about Tesla's sourcing of electricity for their superchargers. The I remember, I think it was last quarter, or maybe it was the annual meeting. the The lady from PETA got up there and asked her questions, and they did. They do now offer their uh, vegan steering wheel. So, PETA got their answer. So, Tesla, you need some. Uh, you need to legitimately at least at least buy offsets to provide some zero emission electricity for your superchargers. Right. Can I mean, you at that, least do that for me? It seems like a. It seems like a minimum, and, and it seems again, like a I no-brainer. Mean, I, but yeah, and well, and and the thing that that I think is really, I think one of the 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 really. Uh, you know, worst aspects of, of Tesla is that, uh, you know, the fans and, and the investors and the supporters and the owners, you know, they love, you know, the idea of what Tesla is doing and that's making the world a better place and all this stuff. 
but like they refuse to hold Tesla accountable themselves. I, I mean, I started the Tesla Q podcast and I love the idea of, of Tesla. Yeah. Zero emission transportation is a fantastic idea. Yeah. I love that idea. But yeah. it's, I mean, if they're not even buying offsets for the CO2 that's being emitted for the electricity that they're using at their superchargers, I, I can't buy that. And the constant outside fundraising is, is too much. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and I just, I just don't understand if, if, so, if, if you believe that a company is worth supporting because they hold certain goals, but then they're not actually pursuing them. Right. And again, there's no evidence that they've really made any serious effort to make all the, the, the supercharger solar. Like why aren't the customers demanding it? Right. Like this is what they bought into and, and Tesla's not giving it to them. Um, apparently like what the message they're sending is, is that the perception is enough that they don't really care about the reality. They mm -hmm. just, they're buying the perception, which again, taps into like a lot of, of criticism that's out there that like, this is virtue signaling and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like, if you don't like that, like, if you don't want people saying you're a virtue signaler, like hold the damn company accountable, like yeah. ask them to actually provide the substance of what you bought into. Yeah. That, and, and the electricity for their superchargers that seems far more fundamental to what they claim their mission is than the vegan steering wheels even so yeah yeah I, absolutely another another of the key parts of of your book that that struck me was the fact that august 7th 2018 was not the first time that elon musk claimed to have funding secured so yeah. that was actually like the third if not more than if not fourth or fifth time that he did that. So you want to yeah, just it was the give third a time that I found. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think this is a really important point um, because not, not, not because like, Oh, you know, Tesla's that much worse than you realize. Like it, it's really because like, it explains how we got here. Right. Like how did something like, like funding secured last year, one that everyone knows about that doesn't come out of, out of thin air. It doesn't just, it doesn't just happen. Right. Like you have to build up to something that crazy basically. Um, and, and what this, what these other cases prove is that, you know, they built up to that by doing it before and getting away with it. And I think that once someone gets away with something once or twice, uh, you know, they're going to think that that's something that they can do again and they're going to lose perspective on what is acceptable and what's not. And um, so, so just to, to just the, those two cases, one was in, in late 2008 and one was in early 2009. Um, and again, this was right when Tesla was having severe financial trouble, almost went bankrupt. Um, in 2008, um, they announced in like, and I don't have the dates in front of me, but it was like, like around Thanksgiving, basically end of November, I want to say they put out a press release basically saying that they, they concluded around uh, a, a funding round. And it was convertible debt. Um, and you know, the Reuters actually in covering this press release actually used the term that they secured funding. <laughs> uh, Tesla didn't use that term themselves, but, but Reuters did. And, um, and you know, then later, and this is also fascinating because like Elon Musk can't help, but, but build his own legend. Uh, and so later in Ashley Vance's book, he bragged about how like, not bragged really, but like, you know, dramatized, let's say this, you know, dark period that he somehow was able to survive with sheer will, uh, 
you know, by saying like we didn't secure the funding until uh, or the, the round didn't actually close until uh, Christmas Eve. And so it was like a month and a half or something like that. Again, though, it was at least a month between when they put out this press release and when they actually had the money. Now, I, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not making specific legal accusations here, but like that there, it was it was obvious what was happening, which was that they were having a hard time securing the funding and you know, it's this classic fake it till you make it, right? And it's mm -hmm. just a very, very raw example of like, if you say something has happened, like the chances of it actually happening become better. <laughs> like mm -hmm. this is key to to how Elon Musk does stuff. And uh, so, and then shortly after that, um, because that round, you know, it only just kept them alive. It didn't really get them fully back on track. They had to get the... Um, the government loan in order to actually, you know, be able to do what they, they ended up doing, um, basically make the Model S happen. Because uh, basically the Roadster was just, it was never going to be a viable business. Like it was never going to come close to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so early in 2009, he sent an email uh, to reservation holders at this point or, or yeah, deposit, whatever, like they, they hadn't actually done any deliveries yet. Um, and he said that, uh, the Department of Energy had told them that they would be dispersing uh, loan money within the next couple of months, I think three or four, something like that months. Um, it turns out that they hadn't even submitted a complete application. They'd submitted one incomplete application. And I think it wasn't until their third application that they actually were, that, that the, the DOE actually said, you know, okay, we will, you know, eventually disperse this money to you. Mm -hmm. And and the money itself wasn't forthcoming for another 18 months after that email easily. Again, rough numbers here. But um and so again, you know, it's just classic example of, you know, you if you project a reality out into the world, um if you're lucky enough, uh reality will 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 shape itself to your projection. And again, this is just this this explains to me anyway Right, like I, I'm, I'm not in the camp of people who think that that Elon Musk sort of set out to be a, a fraudster. I genuinely don't believe that that was what he set out to do. But I do think that if you look at these patterns, he just got it. He, he basically the pattern is consistently underestimate how hard what your what the car business is basically. Uh, underestimate how hard it is and how much money it's going to take. Uh, get yourself into a really, really tight corner and then have to do something extreme to get yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this again and again. And what's, what's fascinating to me is like when something like Funding Secure happens, uh, now what I always ask myself is what is actually going on? Like what, what corner is he really, right? Like, again, I think if anything, Funding Security was – I think we were all, myself included, very distracted by it because it was so extreme. So, so in part, it's like, you know, trying to make something happen through sheer force of will. But part of it also is, it, you know, maybe at this point, it's a little bit of a distraction from like, you know, okay, so things must be really bad for him to be going back. Like you look at what we now know about 2008, 2009, for him to be going back to the well uh, for those practices, uh, things must have been really bad last year. Yeah, he had that Axios interview where he, said that they were single digit weeks from from dying so yep yep i i tend to think that was probably the 
one of the two most true things that he said in the the year 2018, along with uh, if they made the Model 3 and sold it for $35,000, they would have gone bankrupt. I yeah, think those, those those two things I think I, f- I feel like were the two most true statements he made that year. So, yep, yep, checks out. Uh, another another thing from listening to your book that that came to mind is something that I've intended to do for maybe a month or more now that I I haven't done yet, and that's to figure out what letter of the alphabet to use for the this past May's uh, funding that Tesla got from outside investors. So. To, to give that a, a a letter of that round of financing. So I, yeah. I'm thinking it's like Q, R, or S or something, but I, I'm not yeah, exactly Yeah, honestly, sure. I, I haven't... I haven't added it all up. Actually, someone someone should do that. So if um, anybody's listening and, and gets bored and wants to do that before I get around to it, feel free. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually... Honestly, I could... Because I... Um, you know, they're like... Uh, uh, there's Crunchbase, I think, has mm-hmm. some information about funding, but it's not all. It's not complete. It's not all there. Um, there isn't a one-stop place where you can really see all of the rounds that Tesla has raised over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and or at least I don't have one. Maybe people have, you know, fancy uh, uh, subscription data services that have that kind of stuff. I I don't. And and frankly, it would have made my my life easier writing the book. And mm-hmm. and I think it would be a good resource. Um, you know. And I think it would be good to be able to to put that letter clearly on this past May's raise and whatever their next raise might be, which I anticipate to be between now we're recording on October 3rd, 2019 and probably the end of March of 2020. That's, that's my guess for when it needs to happen. And actually I tweeted yesterday that if they don't, if they don't raise above $180 per share, I'm not sure that they'll be able to raise again, but that's just me speculating baggily again. Yeah. But, uh, well, no, we'll I see. think the thing that that's important about about you know illustrating this, about showing this full history, um, is that right? Like I'm constantly being told um, on Twitter that you know, uh, you know, oh, you've been predicting them going bankrupt since 2008, which not true, but um, but let's pretend it was. Like you know, they did almost go bankrupt. Well, they it? did yeah. almost go bankrupt, and and the question is really why didn't they go bankrupt? Is it because they under they, they they mastered like automotive operations better than I expected? No, no, no. It's because they've been able to raise money more effectively than I thought, and that's fine. I'm happy to concede that. It does not at all mean that my critiques have been off base, though. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's just it's just you know frustrating. Not that I take it too seriously at this point, but like. It is frustrating when people are like, "Oh, you said they were gonna," and and also, by the way, like I didn't, I really have gone out of my way throughout the years to avoid specifically predicting bankruptcy because, in the auto industry especially, it's very hard to know when that's going to happen, even with a normal car company. Um, uh, but also, when you're dealing with someone like Elon Musk and is able to raise money the way they are, it's very hard to know. So I've avoided making that specific prediction. But again, broadly speaking. What has kept them alive, like, yes, you know, the ability to develop appealing cars has been part of why they're still alive. If they hadn't done that, they would probably not be alive today. Mm -hmm. But really, the single decisive factor, clearly, is that they've been able to go back and raise money again and again and again and again. Um, And I think that's also why, you know, if, if we are, in fact, headed towards an economic downturn, right, like, that's where 
things like this stop working. It's it has nothing. It partially because of the demand issues and and overcapacity and and whatever all those traditional auto industry things. But really, it's that you know easy money no longer becomes easy, and easy money is is the thing that has kept Tesla around. Yeah, and I think they're uh, either four or f- five quarters that they've ever shown a profit were were very strategically timed so that yes that first quarter 2013 profit that they showed was that was some incredibly key timing and then i feel like them paying off that doe loan and paying it off early with i feel like they took advantage of of uh projecting themselves as the anti-solyndra because solyndra still gets talked about today as the the big failure of that whole energy policy act or whatever it was that yep. they gave all this money and so i feel like tesla took advantage of of being the opposite of that well and, and also then, yeah and in the uh quarter three and quarter four of 2018 of course if they hadn't showed those profits that may 2019 raise would have been much more difficult to to have happen yeah but, yeah so i mean so i actually you know the 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 profits that they showed in the second half of last year were incredibly stressful for me because I was, you know, in the thick of, of trying to get this book, you know, close to being done. Um, and the question of, of their profitability was a big one. And um, while that was all going on, it was not 100% clear to me that they hadn't turned a corner. Um, and, and I think it's very clear now what happened in, in the second half of last year, which was that they were in the fat part of their order book um, and they were getting a mix of volume and, 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 and mix, right. And, and, mm-hmm. and transaction price performance model threes. And- yeah. That, that could get them over the line. Uh, apparently the, the stuff with, with, with Panasonic, I've seen a little bit about that on Twitter. I've not really looked super into it myself, but like that aside, I, I, you know, it showed, but again, like, you know, a car company with a hot product, you know, it's not enough to have a couple quarters of profit. Well, you like the car business is a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, at the time, you know, Elon was saying, you know, we're going to be profitable and cash flow positive now forever. And we're only going to sell fund growth. And that was, that was the thing. It wasn't just that they turned two rounds, of, uh, two quarters of profit. It was that he was saying that as well. And, mm-hmm. and August, I August 1st, it. August 1st, 2018, I think is when that conference call was. Yep. And, and to me, it was like, listen, if that were true and they had done that and, and that were still the case today, that they ever since then had been profitable, cash flow positive and not raised any more money, um, I would be feeling pretty awkward about, about my book um, and, mm-hmm. and just my general overview, you know, my, my perspective on the company. All of the previous profits were very, very obviously uh, Man- manufactured. Yeah, manu- <laughs> yeah. Was the one thing that Tesla was save up well. the the Zev credits and the GHG credits, and then exactly. sell them it all at once and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But but that second half of 2018 was stressful for me because um, it was the first time since I started really paying attention to the company that I wondered, you know, is are they are they <laughs> able to turn the corner? It, now I don't. There's no question in my mind. Am I taking do. crazy pills? Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah, and and a, another thing about that, those two quarters and the fat order b- book that we can look back on now about uh, about seven months in arrears or from uh, from the last day of February, when they 
last day of February, February 28th, 2019, they announced we finally have the $35,000 Model 3. And in conjunction with this, we're going to have to close we're going to close all of our stores so that we can yeah. afford that price drop. And yep. then less than like 11 days later, March 11th, after the which I've talked about this on previous episodes, but the Wall Street Journal had an article where one of the big big real estate companies was like, uh, you guys still owe well over a billion dollars of leases. You can't just yeah. shut your stores. And then they backtracked. So that, that single announcement and backtracking, I think is a key, key thing that we can see looking back seven months now yep. that shows pretty clearly that it was the fat order book of quarter three and quarter four of 2018 that led to their profits. So Right, yeah. right, because it's not just the financial performance, right? It's it's also a, a cultural question. And I think that's a thing um, that has really, you know, I keep coming back to, um, and I've really sort of, I've always, I, you know, I've always appreciated that, like, the Toyota production system, like, that the auto industry was changed not by a technological revolution, but by a revolution in culture, and the understanding that culture is the only way to manage the kinds of scale that you have in the auto industry. Um, and I think, you know, but I think Tesla has really provided the other, like the flip side of that coin, um, which is that, you know, certain cultures can be really, really appealing to the public, but, but also totally dysfunctional to the car, to the car business. And mm -hmm. so when they, when they turned two quarters of profit and said they were going to be profitable and, and cash flow positive and specifically self-funding their own growth forever, um, that to me, it, again, it wasn't just like, that their financial performance seemed to have turned around because again that can be fleeting but i thought that they had turned a corner culturally i thought that they really got it that um or maybe their investors had had forced them to acknowledge that like um operational efficiency is not something that you can just turn the switch on it's a culture thing and that it takes practice um and it takes sort of you know culture is habit and so you have to inculcate these habits in order to achieve the numbers, right? The operational efficiency that you want, you have to, and, and Musk was talking about a Spartan diet and about, you know, all this stuff. And I like, to me, it sounded like they, they started to get it. And like, part of this is just maturity, right? It's just acknowledging, mm -hmm. like, we can't sell the hyper growth story forever. We have to be a, a real business. Um, and, and culture sort of changes based on that. And what that first quarter showed was, nope, this is exactly the same old Tesla that we've been dealing with the whole time. And uh, not only are they losing money and 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 all that, but like Musk is out there doing the classic thing, which he's done again and again, which is say stuff on calls that nobody else in the company has ever heard him even like wonder <laughs> aloud about. And like just make these gigantic strategic decisions like on the fly, in the middle of a call. Um, and like, again, this has happened many times. Mostly he's like surprising the engineers. I don't think he usually like surprises the finance guys as much as he did on that one. But like, it, it was just, it was just so obvious. Like, no, 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 this is just, this is the same old Tesla. Like they had two good quarters. That's all that happened. Yeah. And I, I think another thing that clearly shows that is all the executive departures that yeah. have just gone on and on and on. So well, and that's been, that's been permanent. I mean, that's been happening since you know, there was a huge wave of departure after the Roadster, you know, in, in what, 2008, nine sort of. Um, and like every time another car, you know, is complete, you know, they start producing it or whatever, like a bunch of people leave the company and, and then, yeah, it, but that's accelerated over time. Um, it just, they just, and, and again, like that's, and, and I think that is one thing that Ashley Vance did a really good job of in his book 
was this point this it's a it's a really profound insight i think which is that like musk is always talking about about, about how much he cares about humanity but like his indiv- like <laughs> his- individual relationships are all totally dysfunctional and he treats people like an infinitely renewable resource and like the crazy thing is is that and and again this is why like the fans have such a codependent dysfunctional relationship with him is that they're like no it's elon right like like elon is the reason this company is great it's not it's they he was able to attract really talented people and frankly like the 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 one of the biggest knocks on his intelligence is the fact that he was not able to understand how ta- how talented these people were and the hell that he was putting them through and that none of them, like that he was lucky that any of them stuck around for as long as they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, especially in the car business, you know, uh, institutional knowledge is really, really, really important. Again, it's, it's, it's t- in, tied with how important culture is. And if people are constantly turning over, you just never build that institutional knowledge. And it's just been brutal for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw just just a little bit before we started this interview that you put out a new article today uh, in res- kind of in response to a, a Washington Post article about autonomous driving and and how that factors in. So do you want to we'll, we'll go away from the book for a minute and you can talk about that. Yeah. So so actually, I mean, um, you know, automated Tesla's whole relationship with automated driving really could be its own book. Um, maybe, maybe should be its own book. Hey. Um, because yeah, because I mean, you have you know, experience now writing books. So, <laughs> right. uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not ready to think. I, I won't wish that on you quite yet. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I, I, I won't rule it out ever, but I, I'm not ready to think about it yet. Um, but, but what I mean is, is that right. So, so ludicrous is really mostly focused on the auto industry part of it. Um, and, and Tesla as a car making company, making and selling, um, traditional auto industry. And, uh, you know, I think there's a you know a whole story there. And, and I do have two chapters um, about autopilot, or one about autopilot and one about full self-driving, um, where I was able to talk about this stuff very briefly. Um, and one of my big frustrations is that I, I wasn't able to get into it more um, because I think it's really, really big. Um, I just said on, on Twitter earlier today that, you know, uh, and this was sort of when I was thinking about this, starting to think about this piece that I ended up writing that like, you know, Tesla as an EV maker, um, you can, you can cut them a certain amount of slack. I think, and again, you know, Tesla charts certainly disagreed with me. Others I'm sure disagree with me, but like as an EV maker, they made mistakes. They've been naive. Uh, yeah. I mean, they, you know, they got into, into some corners and did some questionable stuff to get out of it. But like all that stuff is like, you know, not great. A lot of it's not great. Uh, but like a lot of it was sort of more or less honest mistakes ish. Yeah. Right. And part of, and again, I'm being, I'm being generous yeah, here. Yeah. And part of fulfilling their mission. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And, and there was a mission that, that animates that part of the business. But when you start talking about the automated driving stuff, like that's when it becomes very, very, very different, right? Like there's no mission there. I mean, they've sort of tried to, you know, Elon talks about the fundamental good of saving lives and all that kind of stuff. But like, like from the very get go, it was incredibly opportunistic, right? Like, like, so, so before that 2013 first quarter, 2013 miracle, things were so bad that Elon got a deal with, with Google. 
uh, and and that Google was going to buy them. Like they had an incredibly generous offer. They're going to buy them at like a I don't know thirty percent or something something crazy like premium uh, to where their stock was at at the time, which was very low by by Today's, what we think yeah. of as yeah everything post twenty thirteen. And uh, and Elon was going to stay in control. Very sweet deal. Um, they pulled off that miracle, quote unquote, uh, and they said, "Forget it, Google. We don't need you anymore." And it was after that that they started talking about autopilot and automated driving. And we now know that Google had a highway driver assistance system called Autopilot, <laughs> except for the P was capitalized. Uh, so Tesla basically ripped off the product, ripped off the the name, um, and and but they didn't really rip it off because Google wouldn't wasn't even going to bring it to market because it was unsafe, and they knew it was unsafe from their own research. Um, in ways that NHTSA and, and is to this day still trying to put together the evidence that is unsafe. It's not about the system being not functioning. It's about the interaction between the human and the person, right? And mm -hmm. we don't have to get into yeah. all that. I'm sure most people how, are familiar. How, how much the human trusts the system. and Exactly. That the, the system is, is able to be used in places where it can't actually keep you safe. And so you're not paying attention and you drive into something that you easily could have avoided at high speed and die. Um, and, and, you know, if you look at how autopilot was designed, you know, it was very clearly designed to look and feel as, as autonomous as, as they could make it. Um, and so they were, you know, again, it's that, um, that, that image uh, tail. Yeah. The tail fin thing, mm -hmm. right. They couldn't make an autonomous car, but they could give you something that you could buy, which by the way, you can't buy a real autonomous car. They're way too expensive. Um, and, and they're not like approved for the market or anything. Um, and never, well, not never, but won't be in the, in the, in the short term. Um, and, and Tesla would, would give you that taste of the future. And like the only catch was, you know, yeah, you're kind of supposed to like, you know, pay attention all the time. And you gotta, you gotta put a little bit, put a little bit of torque on the wheel every once in a while. Make, yeah, make it, yeah, make exactly. it think you're paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> um. And so, so frankly, like, like, and again, I don't think Tesla got into the electric vehicle business cynically. I think they got into actually very naively and 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 idealistically and optimistically. Like mm -hmm. that was that was why they got into trouble. But the automated driving thing has always been incredibly cynical, and and so I think it's a real turning point for Tesla. Um. And, and, and so, so basically this Washington Post story, so to kind of bring this to today, um, this Washington Post story was, was really fascinating. Um, they went and talked to people in Silicon Valley um, about sort of autonomous vehicles. And basically people were saying, you know, we feel like we're, you know, uh, guinea pigs here. And like a lot of the people, of course, most people who live in that area work for tech companies. So they see from the inside, like these problems with tech culture that like are sort of feeding this idea of a tech lash, right? About, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the people at, at these companies, uh, you know, they have this agenda of just like pushing the technology as fast as they can, as far as they can, and not really thinking about uh, what the potential consequences are and sort of coding it all in this like utopian uh, varnish and uh, you know what's actually been happening in many cases is incredibly dystopian and um so these people were saying you know we feel like we're the guinea pigs out here and our lives are being put at risk so these tech bros can can uh you know make a buck with this new technology 
Uh, and the thing is, is that they're, they're kind of right. That is happening. But what was fascinating is that they were, these people that, that the Washington Post was talking to, were all really completely focused on Waymo. Um, and like Waymo vehicles stand out because they are just bristling with sensors and you can just, you, you can tell they're autonomous vehicles uh, and they actually are autonomous vehicles. Um, and, and really, you know, if you look at the business practices and the, and the, the safety culture, the design of these autonomous systems, everything about these programs, uh, you know, Waymo is actually, and, and frankly, all of the level four companies, all the big level four companies um, have pretty surprisingly by tech comp by tech standards, surprisingly uh, good safety cultures, certainly in the wake of the Uber crash, mm -hmm. right? So like, like Uber showed where the whole race to autonomy, which was very much a, yep. uh, this toxic tech culture thing that, that was taking us down a very dark road. That death, uh, was terrible and should never have happened, but it did really open everyone's eyes in the space about about the problems with the way they were approaching this technology. Everyone except Tesla, mm -hmm. and like Tesla is the one company that's still in this mode of like trying to bluff everyone, trying to bluster, like make your make you seem further along than you are, set these aggressive timelines, push people hard, put stuff out on the road before it's really ready and, and validated and tested. Um, and, and crucially, you know, put, have your customers who have no training really, uh, have them be the ones who test it. Um, it's, it's asking for, uh, the, the Uber situation It's asking for the Josh Brown situation, the Walter Huang situation. It's just, it's just asking for it. And, but what's crazy is that because Tesla is a consumer car that you can go out and buy. This has also been a really fascinating thing is when Elon Musk talks about regulation, everyone's like, oh, but there must be regulation. The, you know, there's no way they can put this stuff on the road and the government just lets them. Well, guess what? There, there isn't regulation. Mm -hmm. like he can just put whatever he wants out there, basically, in terms of the software. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so people have this, like, this sense that consumer vehicles must be safe because consumer vehicles are regulated to some extent. Um, and that, you know, it's these experimental, you know, test fleet vehicles that must be the dangerous ones. It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, so people are really misperceiving the risk there. Um, and I think also the cynicism with which Tesla has consistently approached automated driving. Um, and I don't mean just cynicism. Uh, I mean, just up and down. I mean, talking about how, how, you know, well, you know, if people die, like you shouldn't criticize the, you know, the technology because going to make you know more people are going to die from human error like that whole utilitarian argument I mean, it's just cynical all the way through and i think it gets concealed a little bit by the idealism of the ev part of the business the electric you know sort of mm -hmm. sustainable transportation part of that i think it gets a little bit lost and i think it is actually very important like a halo effect from the yeah, exactly the the good that is the emission-free transportation yep and the and this cynical approach to to um the automated driving gets lost. Yeah. And so um, I think it's very important. And that's why I think it could basically be another book is because it's like, it's almost like a different company in certain ways. Like if you just take like, you know, the automated vehicle part of Tesla out, it's there's, there's tons of crazy stuff. It's super scandalous. And it, you know, if you just look at that and don't get distracted by the EV sustainability part of it, um, you get them. I, what I think is a, a a clear picture of what is really the soul of this company today. 
mm-hmm. uh, because I think the soul of the company in 2006 and 2008 when they're getting started was different. I think it's it's evolved over time, and like what the story of Tesla's involvement with automated driving, like I think that tells you who they really are now. Mm-hmm. I think it's about time to wrap up the the uh, free version of this interview. Uh, one last thing that I'll ask you for this part of it. Do you think that the Tesla semi is going to happen at any time in the near future? Um, no, I, I, I think, and, um, obviously I'm, this is my personal opinion. I think <coughs> that, um, that Jerome Guillen was burnt out as everyone at Tesla becomes. He, I think he wanted to leave, and I think Elon got him to stay by giving him a personal project. And I think, and that was the semi. So it's basically it was like time off from the the grind of of you know main operations at Tesla. You can go off and do some fun design engineering stuff on this project. He'd been a truck guy at Daimler before, um, and I think that that the point of the Tesla semi was to keep Joan Guillen along, uh, uh, like around at the company. And I think that, you know, it's clearly served that purpose. Um, yeah, he, he actually I, is still there, right? He is still there. He, well, he's the president of automotive. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he's basically Elon. He's like one of the guy. top three guys, I guess, along with uh, Zach, who's mid-30s. Yeah, I would say Jim Gian is, is a, number two at Tesla, oh, okay. basically. Yeah, effectively. To the extent that there is a number. I mean, it's really Elon and everyone else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, but if there were an actual like org chart, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it would be number two. That still had so, names on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. So no, I think I think it's accomplished what it what it existed for. Um, Didn't wasn't I, it also partially to get some deposit money? Maybe. Maybe kind of. Yeah, I don't know. But, I don't know how much people or other companies actually put down for semi deposits, but. I would. Yeah, I would love to know how many active deposits specifically for the semi are on tesla's books right now because i don't think it's very many. all right let's let's make that a third question that i'll challenge uh some analysts to to ask on the call coming up in cool. a couple weeks they won't get an answer but cool <laughs> yeah how many active semi deposits do you have elon no boring bonehead questions let's go to youtube yeah, let's go to youtube all right uh well i appreciate you joining for this interview and uh any i'll, I'll give you a chance to plug anything you want plug your book or yeah i mean uh you know this book took a lot of a lot of you know my life (laughs) my life forces um and uh i really i really put a lot into it and so um you know buy the book uh help help support that um i mean obviously you know check out the drive uh drive.com uh and uh you know if you want to listen to to my the dulcet tones of my voice you can check out the Atonicast and uh and merge now uh but really um you know but buy a copy of the book for a friend something like that um that would be that would be great i think uh i i would love to i wrote it for people who are not just following this story uh very closely themselves i wrote it for people who 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 haven't really who kind of know a little bit about tesla but but haven't gotten sucked into it the way we all have um and so if you have a friend uh who's interested but doesn't really know much uh buy a copy for them and uh if you get in touch with me i'll I'll even if i come to your city i'll sign it for you or for that awesome a signature all right uh well 
stay on. We're going to do a, a bonus part, but um, to wrap this up, if you want to be a supporter of the podcast, go to patreon.com slash podcast. And if you become a patron, you can hear this bonus part that we're about to record. And if you want shorty merchandise, like a nice coffee mug, go to evacuationboy.com. And appreciate you listening to episode number 48 of the Tesla Q podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.